Thank you, Mike. I invited, I'm inviting some people right now, reached out to them last night, so. Sure is fun to be with you. We've been on vacation. July has been interesting, so it's good to be back. Love to see your faces and be with you and get back in the groove. It's going to be a fun fall. We were uh, in Santa Fe. We were in Colorado. We decided to kind of veer off into Santa Fe for 24 hours, and I was walking out to our car with Mia, and I just had this suspicion the night before. I, I, don't, the, I don't feel like the car is safe. Jake felt the same thing. It was very odd. We had a number of bikes connected to the back of it, and so I went out there. Mia goes up to the car, and she goes, someone shattered our window. We got broken into, and I saw this guy sitting by the car smoking a cigarette, and I knew he had nothing to do with it, but my heart just went toward him, and I knew I sensed the Lord whispering some things for, for this guy. And of course, being the bold and courageous person, I said, I don't know, I'll, I'll tend to that later. Well, this guy ends up being a hotel employee, and he offers to clean up our car, to vacuum our car. So I pull around in the front of the lobby, and this guy, his name's Zeke, short for Ezekiel, and he vacuums our car for, what, 30 minutes at least, 30, 45 minutes, cleans out every glass fragment in the car, and as he did, I just, my heart just kept going out to him. I just kept thinking, I was thankful for him, but I kept hearing things and sensing things for him, and again, being filled with courage and boldness, I went to the bathroom. And so as I went in and I was ruminating and I'm trying to work the rust out because this is what I used to do all the time. I just very natural ways I would sense the Lord say things and I would go and share it with people, but a little bit rusty in there. And I was in the bathroom thinking about how I shouldn't share the two or three things that I've got. And as I was walking out and walking out of the lobby, I heard this song, Say What You Need to Say over and over again. It was like, say what you need to say. I'm not going to try to pretend it. And I was like, okay, I get it. So I am going to say what I need to say. So I said, Jake, come over here. Let's give this guy a tip because he has served our family. And then I'm going to give him a word. And Jake said, okay. So I just very simply began to speak the two or three things that I sent the Lord whispering for Ezekiel. And he grabbed my hand with both his hands, clutched and I just talked to him about sensing God's call on his life and that the Lord had taken him through some fire and snatched him from the fire. And I saw this group of people that had been praying for him. I said, you're surrounded by prayers. And he just received every bit of it. And I said to myself, it wasn't that bad, right? I did it. And it just dawned on me that we are the primary way that people hear from God. Do you hear me on that? Yes, the Lord speaks through scripture. But in that moment, my Bible would not jump out of my car and walk over to him and open up to a page. No, no, no. I brought the word to him. So like you, I am sensing a restoking of that passion to go in a very natural, compassionate, kind way and speak what the Father is putting on your heart for, for someone. Let me just ask, how many of you are sensing 
this is being revisited in your life. You're doing some of this. Let me just see. I, I just sense that. More. More of it. And you know, 99.9% of the time you walk away from it going, that really wasn't that bad. I'm going to do it again. And then you see the response of the people 99.9% of the time. They're receptive. As long as we're not overly weird and offensive and we soak things in love, people want to hear from God out there. They're created for a relationship with God. So around here, we believe that everyone gets to play and everyone has the potential to hear from God. And that's why we immerse ourselves in the scriptures so that you have more of that rumbling around and moving around inside of you so the Lord can access it. This morning, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 23. And we're going deeper into the book of Corinthians in our series here. We're going to hit pause next week and look at groups. Probably do that for a couple of weeks. Look at community and the reason that we're, we're in groups. We're in small groups and practice that it's been going on for 2,000 years. We're going to to look at that. I also want to say, if you missed last week's message, listen to it. I told Mike I listened to it on the drive into Santa Fe and was undone. So if you missed last week's message, Mike hit pause and preached on the church at, at Antioch in Acts 11 and 13, and it was fantastic. I felt like it was a prophetic word for our church, being a training and sending and mobilizing church. So check it out. So today, 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 23, and what the Apostle Paul in this letter, this prophetic letter for our church today is talking about is building on the foundation of Jesus. And so he's going to point out three things that I think speak with prophetic precision to us as a church. Here we are again looking at the letter in its historical context, and it's unbelievable how it speaks with such relevant power to where we are in this season. So let's read the text. I'll make some comments on it. Then we'll see what the Lord has. 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 23. I'm reading from the New Revised Standard. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building on it. Each builder must choose with care how to build on it. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one that has been laid. That foundation is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, the work of each builder will become visible. For the day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed with fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each has done. If what has been built on the foundation survives, the builder will receive a reward. If the work is burned up, the builder will suffer loss. The builder will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Do not deceive yourselves. If you think that you are wise in this age, you should become fools 
so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, God catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. So let no one boast about human leaders, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all belong to you and you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. It's the word of God. So in these verses here, Paul is talking about building the foundation building on the foundation of Jesus, and look how it begins. He, as he's talking about his first point here, he's saying, build carefully, build carefully. And he begins, as he started the letter in chapter one, and over and over again, he talks about according to what? The grace of God given to me. So at this section of his argument, again, he's reminding the church that everything flows from the gracious heart of the Father. The grace of God, according to the grace of God given to to me. And he explains here that he's building carefully as an apostle. And he's talked in the previous section, got to wipe the cobwebs away from your, your memory, but a few weeks ago we talked about Paul using these different images. He they have an inflated view of what leaders are. And Paul says, you know what? Whether you're an apostle or a teacher, a servant in the church, you're a farmhand. You work on God's farm. The church is God's field. So he's trying to readjust their thinking. They keep elevating human leaders and they keep attaching themselves and forming cliques around them. And Paul is saying here again, he's a builder. Someone else owns the materials. Someone else has sent him to the work site. He's a builder. He's a masterful builder at that. But he works for God. God's the owner. He's the property owner. And he's directing them to rivet their eyes on the person of Jesus. And if you remember what Jesus said in Matthew 16, what did he say about the church? Who is it that builds this church? Christ himself turns to Peter and the apostles and he says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So Paul is taking up this image and he's saying, you know what? As an apostle, I get to come alongside Jesus, the great builder who happens to be the builder and the foundation at the same time. And I get to work with him. I get to partner with him as a builder. And he's reminding them. What's interesting here when he says In verse 11, no one can lay any foundation other than the one that has been laid. That foundation is Jesus Christ. If you remember when Paul is talking about Jesus Christ, he's talking about Christ and him crucified. See, the Corinthian church wanted to lay other foundations in the church. Human wisdom, human ways of doing things. And he says, no, the foundation's been laid. And it's Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's a crucified Messiah. That is the message. That is the foundation of the church. And tucked in this is the love of God. The idea of a crucified Messiah speaks of grace and mercy and love and self-surrender, self-sacrifice. 
Paul mentions here there's six building materials that can be used, and he's just using these as a word picture. The first three, what's the text say here? Gold, silver, precious stones. You get the picture. It's, these are good, valuable, imperishable materials. And he's actually weaving in here, these are materials that would have caused people to think about the Old Testament temple. These are the kinds of things that were used in a beautiful temple. And Paul's going to drill down into this more in a moment. He also mentions three other materials that make for a funny temple, a funny house. And Paul has a sense of humor here. Can you imagine a straw temple? How long would that last? In the sun, the wind, the elements, a straw temple doesn't work. Now this section right here where Paul talks about the day, I would like to skip over it, frankly. You ever come to those passages, those places where you're like, I don't know how to fully unpack that. You feel me here? It talks about the day of the Lord and it talks about fire. So Paul is talking about his own work, his own building on the foundation of Christ crucified in the church. And he's saying, church, I do this in view of this, the second coming of Jesus. And it's a sobering thought. He kind of shifts gears here and he becomes New Testament prophet. And so he begins to speak a message that's very sobering and at the same time, hopeful. And he's referencing, like a good Jewish thinker, he's got the Old Testament prophets swirling around in his mind, a prophet like Joel, who speaks about the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord for Joel and the other prophets meant two things. It meant, first of all, God is showing up. God is going to show up at a point in human history, and everyone will know it. And it will mean great blessing for the people of God, great blessing for those who are in relationship with God, great blessing for those who are surrendered and submitted to the will of God. But folks, for those who aren't, it's a day of judgment. And Paul is reminding the church of this. And he even speaks further about this. The coming day is like what? A day of fire. In verse 13, he talks about this. Now, I want us to sit with this for a moment. As uncomfortable as this is, we're at a place culturally where we want to erase judgment. We want to erase any notion of hell, any of these things. And you know what? I'm still working out how to do this in 2019. How to be true and faithful to the scriptures, but also compelling and winsome. But Paul says it right here. He's saying, I'm doing my work in the church here in Corinth in view of the coming day of fire. This isn't a very common thing for us to talk about, is it? The beautiful thing, though, if you look at what fire means, what it signifies in the New Testament, the Lord himself is a consuming fire. Hebrews 12, where the Lord shows up as a fire, things happen. We know God is what? Love. So it's the consuming fire of his love. So Paul is talking about this. He also knows that the prophets speak about the Lord sitting on a throne of fire. 
and from his presence is a river of fire. It's the very presence and holiness of God. Difficult to explain, difficult to translate in our context, but the Lord burns with fire, the fire of his love. And again, this is a good thing if you're in relationship with him. You know, it's kind of like I was thinking if when I was younger, I was busy doing the things that I should. I wasn't blowing the house up when I was a kid. And my father came home, then it was all good. Everything was fine. His presence is there. But if I was doing things I shouldn't, I was taking money from his wallet, which I had done before, or messing with the carpet, staining the carpet, doing different things, then it meant discipline. So in the same way, the owner of the household is coming again. And are we going to be prepared to encounter his love? Again, this is very sobering. I share this with fear and trembling, feel like I open a can of worms. I'm going to leave it up to you to go and and work this out, but I want us to be true to what the scriptures are saying. And this is Paul. This is the Apostle Paul talking about working this out in view of the fire of God's presence. Now, in this this passage here, we've got to understand Paul is talking very specifically about himself and other teachers and workers in the church, right? He's not... To be true to the text, he's not saying that this is for everyone to think about building your lives with precious materials and these kinds of things. But I do think that there is some aspect of this fanning out into our lives as well. Do you hear me on that? First and foremost, doing justice to the text. This is Paul and Paul warning the teachers and the church and those who follow him. Are you building in such a way that honors God? that's cementing people to the foundation of Jesus. But I found myself looking at this passage and doing a little bit of reflection this week. I began to think about over the last 20 years or so, my life with Amanda, there were times when I felt like I did some good building. I was in line with this. There were other times when in my own life, I haven't built so well. I've built using some wood, hay, and straw. Am I the only one in the room? Anybody else in here have some wood, hay, and straw seasons? And the point is not to be filled with regret. I look back on a window of time from 2000 to 2004 where Amanda and I moved to San Francisco. And I was burned out and wanting to be with unchurched people all the time, but it became a time of doing some building with wood, hay, and straw. And you know what, church? I ended up losing everything. We ended up, I started a business, we worked on it for four years, and we ended up having to move back to Oklahoma, and so I had to travel back to San Francisco every two or three weeks for almost two years. It was a brutal time. And I ended up having a thriving business that went bankrupt. And so as I was looking at this passage this week, I began to not feel regret. Regret doesn't do anybody any good. But I felt some remorse and some sadness and some, how could I have done things differently? And I felt the grace and love of God. But you know what it made me want to do? 
as I approach 50, I want to build carefully here on out. I've only got a few years left. It flies by 20, 30 years, Lord willing, maybe more. But this passage just caused me to reflect. Lord, will you help me build carefully from here on out? Would you help me pass that on to my kids? Would you help me own my mistakes in my life? And so the grace of God comes through even a passage like this where there's some heaviness. A second thing at verses 16 and 17, Paul mentions a second part of building on the foundation of Jesus. And he says to the church, after this rather heavy prophetic word, even soaked in the grace and love of God. He says, church, you're God's holy temple. Do you not know that you're God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? I'm gonna put a slide up here, if you don't mind putting up a slide of the temple of Aphrodite, which was there in Corinth. Can you see it? It's about five stories high, not a huge temple. But this would have popped up in the mind of the church at Corinth as Paul turns to them and says, you, church, are the temple of God and God's spirit dwells in you. He actually uses you as plural. So he's saying you collectively, church, are the temple of God. And they would have thought of some of the temples in their own home city. This temple It's about 500 years. It was constructed about 500 years before Christ. Had 1,000 courtesans that worked in it. Some of you are saying, what in the world is a courtesan? It's a temple prostitute. They had 1,000 people that had been sex trafficked. There was slave trade going on in this very temple right here. So when Paul talked about the temple, this would have been the first image that would have come to their mind. And you know what he's saying? We're gonna see this later in the letter. He's saying you are God's alternative temple. This is the temple that you're used to seeing planted right in the middle of Corinth with temple prostitution and all of this madness that goes on through religious ritual. And what Paul is saying is God has planted another temple right in the heart of Corinth, and it's you. It's the church. And the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God lives inside of you. And we're going to drain that temple. That's what Paul is saying. I'm going to show you a whole new way of doing spirituality, a whole new way of living, and it's holiness and purity. So he puts this word picture in our minds, and he'll come back to it several times as he unfolds his argument in the letter. Incredible picture here, though. And for Paul, when he talks about being the temple of God, again, all of the various Old Testament prophets, he would have in his mind the prophet Ezekiel, who talks about one day the Lord will make his temple among his people, and the law of God will be written in in their hearts, and a river of his presence will flow through this temple. And people will come from all over the world to this temple to receive healing and salvation. So what Paul is talking about here is profound, very meaningful for the church at Corinth. Made me think of two of our values here at our Lord's. Family, authenticity, 
as we are called to be God's holy temple, we do it in a way of love, of caring for one another, of being transparent, of sharing. There's nothing to hide. We can be open and honest with one another, pursuing family authenticity and holiness. I love it. The church at Corinth was a beloved ragtag group of people, just like we are. And Paul is getting them to think about their whole new identity in Jesus through their relationship with Jesus, through their adoption into the Father's family. They're new. They're new people. He's going to revisit this in chapter 6 and list out some pretty difficult, dark things. And he's going to say, such were some of you. But the Lord's called you to be his holy temple. A final thing he says in these verses Verses 18 through 23 speaks of God's wisdom and ownership. He revisits this theme. Some of you remember what he said about God's wisdom in the previous sections. God's wisdom is very different than our wisdom, isn't it? And for the church at Corinth, it was very different. They were loving the idea of sophisticated speakers coming into their midst. They love to have their ears tickled, tell us the newest thing. And then people would be tantalized by these things and say, well, I like what he has to say more than him. And so Paul again is rooting this out at the end of this section. And he's saying, I remind you that true wisdom is Christ crucified. It's a giving up of self-reliance, relying on Jesus, relying on the power of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul lays this out in verses 18 through 23. What you think is true wisdom, in fact, is not. And he uses some arguments here, and he basically says that those who sever themselves from God will end up trapped in their own way of thinking. So Paul is inviting them, let the Lord into your thinking. Let the Lord into your hearts. Christ crucified. I was thinking of a wonderful story, some of you have heard it before, that deals with this. He's talking about why don't, he invites the church into foolishness. Why don't you be foolish? And then he explains it a little bit, but I was thinking about a story that I heard years ago of John Wimber, the founder of the Vineyard Movement. And he shares a story one day if he's walking in Los Angeles and he saw this guy with a sandwich board on walking the streets of LA, walking up and down this block, this section. And Wimber was a new Christian at the time, and he said, what an idiot. What is this guy doing? And on the front of his placard, it said, I'm a fool for Christ. And Wimber said, you sure are. And you're out making the rest of Christians look like idiots. What are you doing out here? And I mean, he was just judging the guy. And then the guy ended up kind of turning the other way and pivoting and walking the other direction on the block. And on the back of his sandwich board, it said, whose fool are you? And so Wimber, several years later, was in this meeting with Christians and the Spirit of God fell on this meeting. And Wimber found himself on his knees before the Lord and that image flashed to his mind. And he repented for judging the guy. But then in that moment, the Lord used that image. And the Lord was inviting him 
to live a life of divine foolishness, to live a life based in, rooted in the cross. And Wimber said at that moment, I resolved to be a fool for Christ, like this text speaks about. So his life message really became, I'm a fool for Christ. Whose fool are you? I found myself reflecting on that story this week, being willing in some ways that I haven't been recently to be a fool for Christ. Church, whose fool are you today? Are you a fool for your reputation? You gonna live for your reputation so you look good, you impress people? You a fool for your money? You a fool for your knowledge, your own theology? Who, who are you a fool for today? I'm just telling you, I'm gonna be a fool for Jesus. Here on out, turning 50, got these few decades left, I'm gonna be a fool for Jesus. How about you? You wanna be a fool for Jesus? Again, he's not talking about absurdity and going out and making a fool of yourself. He's saying, will you surrender yourself to God like Christ did? Again, the cross itself is foolishness. This is the greatest symbol of divine foolishness, and it's offensive. Self-surrender, giving your heart, yourself, your body to the Lord on a daily basis. That's what it means means taking risks, listening to what the Lord might be saying to you and be willing to do it, to read the scriptures, to practice them on a regular basis. That's what it means to be a fool for Jesus. So Paul's talked about building on the foundation here. He's talked about building carefully. He's talked about the church there and here being God's holy temple. And then he's talked about God having the true wisdom and owning it all. This last piece in verses 21 through 23 is basically he is saying you are focused on people who work for God. God is the owner. And why are you so preoccupied with these human leaders? Rivet your attention on the person of Jesus. Lift up your gaze to the owner of the church and realize that even in your own relationship, because you're a co-heir with Christ, you own it all too. Lift your gaze up. So Lord, we do ask that you would speak to us further through this, that this would rattle around in our minds and hearts, the power of your word, that you love us, that you call us to be in relationship with you, on mission with you. Why don't we stand as the worship?